Welcome to Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. However, I believe there is a more immediate threat. Thousands and thousands of feet of film consumed. Hours and hours of work expended by technicians. And once it's been erased and shredded, it can be done all over again. As all of you know, I've devoted much of my life to convincing the world that travel through film was not only possible, but necessary to survive. It's about that time. Triple Threat Theater. Episode 14. Shout at the devil. I'm your co-host, Joe Daxberger. And I am also your co-host, Ryan Miller. Oh, hey, Mills. Hey, what's up, Dex? Hey, welcome back. Hey, same to you. Oh, thanks. And welcome back, listeners. Yeah. Ready to get devilish? <laughs> yes. Yes, I am. I'm deviled like a ham over here, ready to go. Oh, nice. <laughs> I didn't write anything down beforehand, but I'm hoping to introduce as many devil puns as possible into this episode. <laughs> if I'd only known, I would have looked up some more. <laughs> well, Mills, mm-hmm. this, you could say, is a conceptual episode. Yeah. Is this the first These... time we've done an episode like this? Quite like this? It's beginning to become uh, hard to remember off the top of my head now that we're 14 episodes deep. Mm-hmm. What exactly well, we've done and tackled, but I don't yeah. think we've done one quite like this before. Well, since we're fancy and, you know, up and coming with the technologies, we have this wonderful spreadsheet you created <laughs> for our upcoming episodes, yeah. current episodes, past episodes. Telling people how the sausage is made. Well, well let me tell you, it, it looks like this is the first time. All right, well. Yeah, the, the concept behind this one was uh, just three movies that all have very similar titles. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, come up with a few of these. I guess this is just the first one to appear. Correct yeah. me if I'm wrong, did I come up with this one? This is you. Yeah, so I don't know which movie or movies sparked this in my mind, but uh, for Shout of the Devil, we're going to be talking uh, The Devil's Own, The Devil's Advocate, and The Devil's Backbone. Mm-hmm. Connected by... Really, nothing except uh, the word the words "the devils" in the be- mm-hmm. in the beginning of the title. Because yeah. honestly, spoiler alert: only one of these films actually involves the devil in any real significant way. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Um, another case where we ended up with uh, multiple genres as well, mm-hmm. which is always interesting. Yeah, we've got. Uh, I will just say thriller. Hmm. Mm. Well, I'm gonna say supernatural courtroom drama. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what do I call this one? Actually, yeah, we'll give it its own thing. Your, uh, I guess, Devil's Backbone is a horror, even though it's not particularly. You know, terrifying. we're gonna have to get into that when we talk about that movie. That is something mm, I came into this show wanting to discuss. No, oh, very good. But we will okay. get to that in a we'll little get, bit. We'll get there. Let me ask you a question. Uh huh. Which of these names is your favorite? It's got to be Devil's Backbone. Just yeah, you know, same with without even any context. Like before, I knew what the movie was about. That's just a cool title. Yeah, it is, and a title uh, that again we'll have to talk about it more when we actually get to the Devil's Backbone. But I watched a little bit of the special features on my Criterion Blu-ray. 
mm-hmm. and like the origin of that name and then how it ended up the name for the film is very unusual. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Well, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I know that, you know, as a fellow Guillermo del Toro fan, you had seen The Devil's Backbone before. Yes, sir. Uh, had you ever seen either of the other two? I have seen The Devil's Advocate. I would say nothing, not in the theater, but it's been a long time. So I'm sure it's just like random rental, HBO, whatever, whatever, you know, decades ago at this point. Yeah, I saw The Devil's Advocate before, remembered almost nothing about it. And I feel like, you know, it's not the deepest or most clever movie in the world, but I feel like it's a film that I probably watched when I was like, you know, in high school or maybe even middle school and um, probably didn't really grasp at the time a lot of mm. what like was really happening. Mm-hmm. Um, every now and then I'll see a movie that I, I know that I've seen before, but I get that feeling like, mm, I don't think I understood the depth of this concept back when I saw it. And yeah. I would bet this is one of those because it has been a long time since I've seen this. Sure, sure. The, now, The Devil's Own, when this episode came up, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, yeah, it's that Brad Pitt movie. Um, not the Brad Pitt movie I was thinking of. Were you thinking of Meet Joe Black? No, not even. Oh, <laughs> what were you thinking of? I'm pretty sure, isn't there some spy movie that he's in from around this time? Spy Game? Yes. <laughs> For I, I have no... No reason to think it, but that's just kind of. Oh, it's another movie that's headlined from the same time period that's headlined by Brad Pitt and like a classic aging actor because that was him and Robert Redford. Right. So I can't even confirm that I've seen that one. But going in, I was like, oh, wait, no, Devil Zone is not that. And then I was like, I have not seen the Devil Zone until for this episode. Never saw Devil Zone before. Didn't bother looking it up when I came up with this idea for the list. Uh, so honestly, had no idea what it was about. Mm-hmm. Um, like I got the DVD from the library to watch for this show, and that like a week ago was the first time I ever even read a synopsis of it on the back of the disc, and I was like, "What? What? That, that's what yes. this is about?" <laughs> Same. But uh, yeah, um, an interesting trio for sure. Yeah, something different. Mm-hmm. If 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 anyone likes anything about this show, it's it's at least we'll try anything. That's true. So and that's why we can't get anybody else to guest host with us because yeah, no one else yeah. wants to try anything. No. <laughs> Somehow we came together and we just can't get anyone else on the same page. But yeah, at least we have each other. <laughs> oh, oh. Uh, I wouldn't want to talk about devil movies with anybody else. Fact. <laughs> Accurate. Um. It's uh, it's tough since they're they're very different movies. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like just a general conversation, unlike when we did like monkey movies and we could just talk about right monkeys for fifteen minutes before the actual reviews. Uh, I'm kind of feeling like we should just dive right on into yeah, this one. Please, let's. I'm ready. All right. Well, uh, going in chronological order, um, I didn't even realize that all three of these movies came out so close together mm-hmm. uh, within like a four year time span, but. Um, so Devil's Own and Devil's Advocate both came out in 1997, but The Devil's Own was first, uh, March 26, 1997. Okay. I'm in a bind. I don't have time to explain. I'll just I'll get my gear and I'll clear out. 
What's the money for? I was thinking guns. I was thinking IRA. I need that money, Tom. Why? So other eight-year-olds can watch their father's gun down in front of them? If this money leaves here, more people will die. Can you tell me that won't happen? Starring Harrison Ford and Brad Pitt in a movie that, despite Devil in the Title, like we mentioned, has no ties to the devil at all. Um, really, this is kind of like a political thriller, in a manner of speaking. Although, I want to say it's a political thriller because it involves like the IRA, but... Right. Really, there's nothing very deep and political about it. No, I didn't. I didn't read too far into it, but something I did re- read said that it wasn't really respectful of the current going ons in Ireland mm-hmm. that it was representing with the IRA. So, well, let me that's... let me ask. Let me start this conversation off with just a simple, broad question, because I'm like me. I'm guessing you didn't really know what you were getting into with this film. Correct. Go so ahead. let me just ask you this question. From your point of view, having watched it, is The Devil's Own a good movie? Oof. Millsy bringing the, the fastball right I just away. want your like instinctual, what do you think? Like, Did you watch the movie and enjoy it? Did you watch the movie and not enjoy it? I enjoyed it. Now see, I did too. Um, watched it, going in fresh. Uh, not exactly what I was expecting, but you know, good performance by Brad Pitt, good performance by Harrison Ford. Um, mm-hmm. a lot of other things I like about it, namely just like the look and feel of like prestigious films from this time period. A lot of stuff filmed in New York City in the in like the nineties, which is cool and like I like that feel. And then like I'm reading about the movie afterwards and it seems like a lot of people did not like this, and it only has a thirty five percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. I same kind of thing. I went in blind, watched it, enjoyed it, but for the same reasons. Yeah, and then I did like the reading after. Apparently, you know, Brad Pitt tried to walk off the production. Yeah, and he was the he one who like so brought this to the studio and got everybody signed on. Yeah, like he he asked for Harrison Ford, and then. Whatever happened, it got rewritten like five times on the fly during filming, which mm-hmm. I'm sure is a stressful. And B is probably like, you know, imagine if you're Brad Pitt and that story is true, like you bring this movie, you really want to have it made. And then just people who just got involved are changing the entire thing out from under you. Yeah. And then, like you say, apparently at some point during the filming, he tried to leave the project, and like the people from the studio were like, you're going to owe us a lot of money if you abandon us yeah. in the middle of this film. So he just kind of stuck it out. But um, I think I have the quote here. Um, he said of the movie, um, he complained that the script was incompetent and incoherent and denounced the movie as, quote, the most irresponsible bit of filmmaking, if you can even call it that, that I've ever seen. Which is pretty wild. Yeah, that's I have wild, to imagine that's that that's statement. referring to like the fact that they were like filming it without a script and all that, which is not something I've never heard of before. 
Oh yeah, I mean that's that's happened plenty of times. Mm-hmm. What I I read a tidbit, I believe Harrison Ford made twenty million. Yep. Brad Pitt made twelve. Mm-hmm. And then whatever movie exec, whoever it was, basically said it would cost him. It would, they would. It would cost Brad Pitt sixty five million if he walked away. Which I don't know how that math works, but that's what they said. You know, it could. I don't know. That could have just been like hyperbole, mm-hmm. or that could have been just like a made up number to scare Brad Pitt sure. or something. Or My like, guess, though, is that's probably close to the budget. And yeah. like, if he abandons the movie in the middle, that's like mm-hmm. fucking the entire film, basically. And it would either sure. fall apart, or they'd have to recast and reshoot everything. Yeah. Basically, just you know, I assume that you sign a contract that says like you know you're responsible for a significant sum if you leave the movie in the middle, especially it's if you're be. one of the the lead stars. Yeah, I mean, again, like I always say at this point, like being a fly on the wall, I would love to know like how yeah. all that works or how that kind of panned out. But and like, there's been plenty of instances where there's been a movie coming out and you see the trailer and then you watch the actual movie and there's like scenes that were in the trailer that are missing, like. Mm-hmm. Somewhat recently, um, Mission Impossible uh, Fallout, yeah, Fallout had that scene in the trailer where it's like Tom Cruise in a there's like a truck jackknifing towards him on a road, and oh, it seems yeah, like yeah. this big moment that's not in the movie, and I don't know where it would even fit in the movie. Oh. Um, now you know that movie comes out okay, that scene's not in it, but the movie's fucking awesome anyway. But then I was reading that there's like tons of stuff in the. I, I should have watched the trailer for this movie now that I think about it. But there's apparently a ton of stuff in the trailer, like a love scene between um, Brad Pitt and uh, Natasha. I don't know how to pronounce her last name. McElhone, who Sounds plays good. the love interest for him, Megan. Mm-hmm. And there's like a scene of him aiming a gun at someone while laying in bed. And <laughs> yeah. So. It just sounds like the filming, the making of this movie was a complete clusterfuck, which honestly watching the film, I didn't get that at all. And like no. in a void watching the movie and not knowing anything about it, it's not the most amazing thing ever. And I thought that the ending was a little underwhelming, but mm-hmm. I liked it overall. I did too. I mean, kind of for all the same reasons you said, but you know, I really like both of those actors. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm a big fan of Harrison Ford and Brad Pitt. Um, oddly enough, this this episode for us is you know s- quite a few like second appearances for uh, you know because Brad Pitt we've had in previous episodes and even the director, yeah, uh, who is the late Alan Pakula, pa- yeah, Alan J. Pakula, um, director of uh, All the President's Men, yeah. Uh, along with To Kill a Mockingbird, Clute, The Parallax View, Sophie's Choice, The Pelican Brief, and many more. Mm, yeah, Pelican Brief was his last film. No, this was his last film. Oh, this this it? came after Pelican Brief, yeah. Oh, it did? Oh, I thought. Okay. Yeah, this was his final film. I think he died the same year it came out, if I'm mm. not mistaken. Oh, wow. But uh, I don't know his exact age, but considering he made uh, To Kill a Mockingbird with Gregory Peck, he must have been <laughs> up there in years at this point. Right. Well, you know who else makes their second appearance here, Mills? Your uh, boy. Oh, Treat, Treat Williams. Yeah. <laughs> now what? <laughs> that's how I was. Treat Williams will always be there for us. Goes right back to <laughs> the right. beginning. Yeah, he's an OG on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But yeah, you know, Harrison Ford, I don't always love him, especially nowadays, but classic Harrison Ford, like this time period, I feel like he was always good. Sure. I, I love the character he plays, the just very like straight and narrow Boy Scout, like there is no gray area, there's good yeah. and there's bad kind of character, family man, mm-hmm. um, just like a nice dude. Um, I feel like having Alan Pakula direct this thing was probably, probably helps a lot towards why it's so good, because I feel like there's just character moments that he puts in there, like something that's so minor, but so telling about the kind of person that Harrison Ford is his character in this movie is when uh, it's been like a long day and he's in like, I think his sweatpants and his, his socks and he's like going around the house and he's like telling all his kids, like get ready for bed and do this and do that. And then like he goes and he like stretches and he's like mid process of laying down (laughs) on the couch Mm -hmm. in front of the TV with the remote in his hand. And his wife is like, honey, we're out of milk. And he just like stops just gives a little look and gets back up and something mm-hmm. about that, like little yeah. moments like that within that, that house. It's one of those, this is one of those movies where just the family with a quick shorthand feels so real. Mm-hmm. And so like that house is so lived in. Yeah. Well, that's a good, good catch on your part. I love that stuff. I love that tone. Brad Pitt is also really good in it. I don't mm-hmm. know enough about Irish accents to criticize his Irish accent, <clears throat> which is apparently terrible. You know, I read that too, but I didn't think so watching it. Yeah, well, I remember you giving me that trivia, or it was either you or Tony, that trivia on the Guy Ritchie episode about how they made him the pikey because he was supposed to have an accent and he was terrible at it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. I thought it was good in this. <laughs> it's believable. But like, I don't really know fully how to describe the other outstanding thing for me about this movie and I, it's probably a combination of a lot of things like cinematography and just filmmaking at the time. And mm-hmm. it might have something to do with the fact that every camera wasn't like the size of, you know, a box of pop tarts like it is now where you can just like put it anywhere and zip all over the place and do shaky mm-hmm. cam. It was like big tripods and film cameras at the time. Sure. And then just like shooting in New York City for a lot of it. It just has this feeling, this yeah. like warm, fuzzy, comfortable, yeah. like mid nineties feeling for me. That like just watching a movie like this I've never seen before, it's just an immediate like thumbs up, like on yep. its side for me. Mm-hmm. It's funny, like watching this, this is uh ninety seven, like you said, and this feels like throwback like Hollywood mid nineties. Cause if you think two years later, 99 was like fight club, how different of a movie that is. Oh, I'm, I'm just yeah. saying that because it's, you know, Brad Pitt, but just overall feel style, music, everything. Even, like there even was such a, s- even something like seven, also Brad Pitt around that same time. And mm-hmm. it's just got this edge and it's like by a, you know, director with like a real style and, mm-hmm. Yeah, this just feels like a classic, like whatever the good version of a jobber would be, like a guy who can just do it all. And no matter what genre or anything, it's just like always reliably good or something. I feel like this is like the time, like there was a big like, I don't know if you want to say cultural change, like 98, 99, where movies just stopped feeling like this. Yeah. 
you know? And I, you know, I think it has its origins earlier in the decade with stuff like, uh, you know, Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino, um, even mm-hmm. going back to like Spike Lee before them, but like that kind of stylistic, like art, like uh, artiste filmmaker kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I feel like it took over to the point where everyone was copying those filmmakers and right. like trying to be them, even if they weren't. And at some point, everything just became more flashy and tongue in cheek. Yeah. And even like-, like kind of middle of the road, like drama thrillers like this nowadays just mm-hmm. don't have the same feeling. No, they really don't. And they'd For be the filmed most in Toronto. <laughs> That's right. That's absolutely true. <laughs> um, but yeah, this just, I don't know, it just like, it has a real tone and style to it that I really loved. Yeah. Same um, here. I, and like you know I what said, I, really... I just felt at home in it. I, uh, well, I mean, the quick synopsis is yes, please. <laughs> Brad Pitt. Brad Pitt is an IRA soldier who uh, has to leave Ireland, comes to America, basically under like an assumed name because he has like IRA business to take care of, and through uh, you know, I guess you say a mutual friend, he ends up. Uh, sleeping in Harrison Ford's basement. Yeah, it's, under, it's, it's under basically like, a, false like a, a politician or a businessman, like a well-to-do guy who's like invested in the IRA's cause is like helping him like mm-hmm. basically sneak into the country under an assumed identity. Right. And he has a cop friend, Harrison Ford, that will uh, is a good dude and will let this uh, random stranger sleep in his basement. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, things pop off from there. I uh, really liked the opening, the opening in Ireland. Mm-hmm. I thought it was really, really good. You're talking just like the action or like? Well, the whole thing, but uh, particularly the action scene that yeah. causes him to leave. That's like the biggest action of the whole movie, and it's in the beginning. But I mean, it is yeah. like kind not a not a war zone, but it's like, you know, um, like the police and military versus like a group of insurgents essentially mm-hmm. yeah so I thought that was all like uh you know high octane good stuff mm-hmm. and again filmed in a way where it's not like the camera focused on every gunshot and like extreme angles of things it's just like a right. lot of kind of random feeling people shooting and like ducking behind things and blind firing over window sills and stuff which right feels more realistic than, you know, focusing yeah. in on the action and trying to mm-hmm. choreograph everything, which in this right. case I think is a good thing. Mm-hmm. No digital blood. Right, so, <laughs> yeah. You know? <sighs> the days before computer I blood. I know. Yes, yesteryear. Man. <laughs> um, I think they do. I like how, kind of like what you're saying, the whole the couch bit, like there's a couple scenes where they just really, they do a good job of establishing how good of a guy Harrison Ford is mm-hmm. between that, the one where they're chasing that one kid who all he did was like steal a pack of condoms. Yeah. And he lets him go after, you know, chasing through the streets, that whole thing. The Yeah. Between that know. scene and the scene with the, uh, the guy who was still in the car stereo and gets shot. Yeah. The, like like his... bo- all, those are the only two scenes of Harrison Ford being a cop. And like the first one establishes 
his kind of morals as a cop, mm-hmm. which then informs the second one where he takes like a real stance, even though it's against his partner who right. it's unclear if the partner made a mistake. It feels more like he kind of was vindictive against the, the, the robber right. because he shot at them and did it on purpose yeah. and killed the guy, I shot mean, him in the back. But I mean, he, w- he would have got hung to drive Harrison Fold toward this told the story. So, yeah, but just, uh, man, it really does feel like there's an incredible shorthand where you don't have scene on scene on scene of like exposition of Harrison Ford's yes. character. It's just these little moments and Harrison mm-hmm. Ford's acting ability um, to give you the impression of what his character is like and you're off and running with him and you feel like you know what decisions he's going to make before he makes them. All right. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, what, who do you think is the main star of this movie or is there a main star? Um, I mean, main character, I would say Brad Pitt. Yeah. Um, as far as screen time, sure. Well, just like, I think he's, he's more so the character you follow throughout Mm -hmm. the majority of the film. At the end, it's a little different because then it's, I mean, this was something else that I read about that, uh. I th- maybe a critic or they were saying that critics um, had issues with it because it feels like there's no bad guy because both the um, the Harrison Ford and the Brad Pitt roles mm-hmm. are essentially good good guys and they're both sympathetic, which I don't think is that uncommon or something you can't do. No. But, um, I mean, you sympathize with Brad Pitt and you like his character, but he is all the while planning on doing something terrible. Yeah. So, I mean, which is maybe why the ending feels so. I don't know. The ending was the one part of the movie that I didn't really love, like the stuff on the boat at the mm-hmm. very end. Like just, just how it goes down, or just what the actual. Yeah, I mean, I just it almost feels like an easy out to just kill Brad Pitt mm-hmm. and have like the, you know, that little sad moment of like, oh, it's too bad I had to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if it would have been made better by uh, by him just getting arrested or something. Or, mm. yeah, but I, don't... I don't know. It also, uh, I was a little surprised that this movie was so abrupt. Like, literally, uh, Harrison Ford kills Brad Pitt, like, regrettably. And then it cuts to a wide shot of the boat turning around back towards shore, and it pulls out, and it's, like, credits. Like, there's no yeah. denouement. No Harrison Ford like going back to meet up with his wife who went away with the kids to the sisters to be safe or anything. Mm-hmm. No like seeing the uh, the corrupt guy who had uh, brought Brad Pitt over to the U.S. getting his comeuppance or anything mm. like that. Um, which for a movie like this I'd kind of expect. And that is the only thing about it that really makes me feel like, okay, maybe there were some script issues and the ending was a little rushed. But mm. Yeah, I'm... The other stuff that you mentioned, I feel like, is expected, so it doesn't. It didn't. It didn't give me a kind of feeling like it was missing for me. I feel like what happens on the boat like happens pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, as far as like there's really just like that one exchange of gunfire. <laughs> well, what I did read is that uh, two months before the film was released. Uh, the director was unhappy with the climax, so they actually went back and reshot the ending in two days. Hmm. Um, it does okay. feel like there should have been more cat and mouse or something. Something more of a scuffle or yeah, hand to hand or just, you know 
yelling at each other something. But. It's really just a classic, like, they both pull the trigger, and mm-hmm. then it takes a little while before Brad Pitt, like, stumbles, and you realize, oh, he got shot. Right. Um, but, yeah, like, I don't, like, after reading all the stuff about how troubled the production was, that's what makes me wonder, like, oh, maybe that's why the ending feels a little abrupt or something. So I didn't necessarily feel like, oh, the movie's incomplete or there's something major missing, but I definitely did for the time period think as the camera was pulling out, like, this is abrupt for a movie like this from this time period. I think so. I that I honestly felt that watching the movie, not knowing any of the behind the scenes stuff. Mm. Um, for a movie like this, I would have a hundred percent pictured like, uh, you know, him injured and like, like limping through the halls of the police station with everyone applauding him or something, and then his wife running up and hugging him, and then mm. like going back to the house or I don't, something like that mm. is what I would expect. Not to say that that's necessary or good or right. bad. Just it felt unusual to me that this movie just it was like climax credits. Yeah. Huh. I I would almost say I feel like that's more of a more prevalent nowadays than back then. But it rings to me of like uh like old movies, like a lot of like classic movies, any like old black and white films or the really old stuff I watch on uh Turner classic movies, I feel like a lot of times had abrupt endings mm-hmm. or like exploitation films, like every single one of the exploitation films we watched. Yeah. They were all like over credits. Yeah. I feel like that was a lot more uh, common back then. Yeah. Or even in the nineties. Again, but... not something worth getting hung up on, but just sure. wanted sure. to say that I did feel that when the movie ended. Mm. I was happy we got a little bit of a, uh, boat building montage in the middle of this movie. <laughs> yeah, know, refurbishing. I was like, the boat. like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, yeah, all in all, this was an enjoyable movie mm-hmm. for not having any idea what I was getting into. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a good time. I would agree. Treat Williams being a right asshole. I mean, he plays a right asshole. Like, he looks like a soccer, you know, coach or whatever. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, he does. He played a good jerk. Yeah, he did. And um, that bit of a shootout action they had in the middle there was pretty good, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the missiles, you know, it's always good when there's some missiles involved. Oh, 100%. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I uh, was definitely pleasantly surprised by this one. Yeah, same here. Maybe shouldn't be too surprised considering the cast and director, but, I mean, I didn't even, I didn't know who directed it until after the film was over, so. Yeah. I mean, and just I guess like one last note. Do you do you think this is a movie that only gets made because of who's in it, or um, like do you think this is like one of those movies that's just based on star power is why it's got funding type of deal? Well, it's tough to say that because um, you know it it was brought to the studio by Brad Pitt, and then you know he suggested Harrison Ford and it feels like everything just fell into place. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think having one name behind the movie is probably helpful for a film like this. Yeah. Like I'm, I, if this got made with like, you know, Johnny small time actor as the lead, um, we'd probably right. have never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But this, I mean, this kind of story and whatever, it feels like, it's it's not a movie I'm surprised would get made during no, this time period no, or anything. But, yeah, but I just felt like 
definitely something uh, backed by a big name. Mm-hmm. That's what really got it going. Yeah. And I mean, it was, so probably mm-hmm. likely that that was the case. Mm-hmm. So. What do you say? I think we about covered it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's time to move on to our next devil. Millsy, tell tell the people. Uh, later that year, on October 17th, uh, released the same day as I know you did last summer. Mm, interesting. Uh, we get the devil's advocate. Who are you? Never lost a case. Why? Why do you think? Because you're so fucking good. Yeah. But why? Because you're my father. I'm a little more than that, Kevin. Awfully hot in that courtroom, wasn't it? What's the game plan, Kevin? Was a nice run, Kev. Had to close out someday. Nobody wins them all. What are you? Oh, I have so many names. See. Call me dad. Which, as I mentioned, uh, I had seen long ago, as have mm-hmm. you. Um, so I didn't remember a ton about it. Um, this one's based on a book by a writer named Andrew Niederman, who apparently he wrote the book and then took it to Warner Brothers and was like, hey, guys, I think this would make a good movie. And that's like what it took to make to like get them interested. Mm, okay. <laughs> it wasn't like somebody read the book and then took it to a producer and was like, oh, I really like this. It's literally yeah. he took his own book and pitched it as a movie. And it mm-hmm. took a while to get made, but uh, it did get made because of that. Millsy, let me ask you a question. Please. Is this a good movie? I think so. Mm. Same. <laughs> I mean, I would have had no hesitation if you had asked me that about The Devil's Own, but this one, yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. I think it's a neat premise, um, mostly well executed. The ending gets a little... Uh, a little... It almost feels like it's patting itself on the back <laughs> a little too mm. much at the end. Like, the movie has, like, little drips and drops of, like, supernaturally stuff throughout, but then the ending just goes full bore, like, you're talking right. to Satan. Right. Um, but all in all, still very enjoyable. It's it's, it's very late 90s. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got that feeling. Um, it's the second appearance on Triple Threat of young Charlie's Theron. Also the second appearance of Delroy Lindo. Oh, <laughs> yeah. What was his first appearance again? Uh, he was in Congo. Ah, oh, yes. Remember? Uh, yes. Like, oh, yeah. No, I, he was a general. <laughs> Stop eating my sesame cake. Yeah. <laughs> How could I forget? Yeah. yeah. I told you this. This episode, it's full of second appearances. No, it definitely is. Let me say, Devil's Advocate. You know, I love Pacino, mm-hmm. and I think he's great in this. I have like an overall feeling that. The movie now. The movie in the I still remember the trailer. Like I can remember what parts are were in the trailer. So between the 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 marketing, the trailer, uh, the poster, everything, it's like you already know that Al Pacino is the devil in this movie. Like it, you know, it's not like 
that should be any mystery going in. But the entire movie, you know, pans out like it's not, you know, it's saving that for the very end, mm-hmm. even though it's so obvious. Well, that. I, oh, good. Well, I was just going to say, it, it, that kind of bothers me. I feel like it, it could have used more devilish Al Pacino. Now, see, I like the movie as is, and I don't know if it would have hurt, like, the film's success, but I think that the advertising is the thing that should have been altered in this case, because mm. I like the slow build um, mm-hmm. and the whole, like, you know, there's a little bit of an element with Charlize Theron's character, especially, like, is uh, is everything as it seems, is uh, is are the, it's, uh, Keanu Reeves and Charlize Theron just, like, imagining things. Yeah. Um because she's the one who's seeing all of like the right. the hallucination like, kind of imagery of the, demons the ghoulish and stuff. stuff. Yeah. And with him it's just like his fucking life is falling apart around him. Mm-hmm. Um but like I actually read a little tidbit about this that um the whole concept was to save the reveal until the end but then the studio decided that it would probably sell better if they pushed the supernatural well, aspect in the advertising. I I mean, shit, I must say, like, yeah, that was a bad call. Yeah. Because it's so, it's so prevalent. That's all, that's all I could think about when I was watching. I mean, like I said, I'd seen it before. I remember bits and pieces, but it was I was kind of just, like, waiting for something until I got to the end. Mm-hmm. So it just, you know, that, that affected my viewing, my viewing pleasure of this movie. Mm. Which so, I think that's a good point you made, that they, they made a mistake in the marketing. Yeah. Um, that, that's my feeling about it because I think the movie as is like structurally is still very good. Um, it's a little bit of a longer movie. It's like going on two and a half hours. I think it's like two twenty mm-hmm. something, but, um, never dragged for me or anything. And it is just kind of like a slow build towards like a pretty out there ending. Yeah. Um, I guess brief plot synopsis for this one is that, uh, Keanu Reeves plays a Southern lawyer in Florida and he's got a track record of like 64 cases in a row that he's won. He's never lost one. And uh, he is a defense attorney at this point. So he's uh, oftentimes representing people who he knows to be guilty or who don't deserve to get off. But he's so like vain that he just like can't lose. Um, and then a recruiter of sorts comes to Florida and is like, I am from this big organization we have tons of money to throw at you. Would you and your wife like to come to New York while you uh, help us select a jury? Like, that's all you have to do. Right. Uh, once they're in New York and uh, his uh, his jury ends up winning a case that nobody thought he could win, he's introduced to Al Pacino, who is the head of this huge law firm, and they offer him, like, a ton of money to come work for them and move him and Shirley Theron into this, like, beautiful apartment, and everything seems awesome and great. He's, like, a big city lawyer now. But then everything like, starts to go bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shirley's Theron starts like seeing things and she doesn't like the fact that she never sees him anymore because he's always working. And it's just like, a, like the transition from small town, Florida to big time, New York city takes its toll on them. And then spoiler warning, uh, it turns out he's actually working for the devil. <laughs> mm-hmm. Who Who's his dad is also his father. <laughs> mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the concept of uh, the devil, a.k.a. Al Pacino, being his father was added for the movie, by the way, not in the original book. Right, right. 
But um, yeah, like a premise that I like. Um, it it staggers between subtlety and obvious for me a lot of the time because, like I said, I I knew already, and it's hard not to because of the advertising, even so. But um, I think if you watch the movie blind, uh, it it would work much better. Yeah, I I don't think it's always obvious what's going to end up happening. Because even like in the trailer and the marketing, they show like the you know the holy water boiling and everything. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Even just trying to think now, if like you didn't know anything and going and then see that part happen, you you know that'd be real good. Mm-hmm. But man, I think they dropped the ball. I th- I think the movie's a little long. I it, I wouldn't necessarily say it dragged too bad for me, but I do. I felt how the two hours and twenty minutes. I'm not exactly sure what they could have cut. Even though I like Delroy Lindo, I don't know if that necessarily that portion needed to be in there. Mm-hmm. Um, it just it you know it it started to feel pretty courtroom procedural when that wasn't what I was looking for. Again, that just goes into expectations and everything. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I ultimately just wanted more Pacino in general. <laughs> but especially the devilish side, I guess, mm-hmm. that it uh, took away from me. Yeah, if he was revealed front and center as being the devil too early, I think that could have been very bad because, I mean, it's like you wait the whole movie and then you get like you get to revel in Al Pacino being Al Pacino mm-hmm. for like the last 15 minutes. Right. Um and I dare say that uh, that if if he were revealed as the devil any earlier, that could have been uh, too much of a good thing. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I don't know. I might just be. I know. mean, I I like I said, I didn't think it's that the movie dragged taste. or anything. But sure, yeah. you know, it could have lost probably fifteen minutes here or there. Yeah, I mean, I like you know, I like a good movie freakout. So Al Pacino <laughs> delivers those. So if I could have got more of that, I would have been fine with it. Yeah, I I think saving it all up for the end is a wise move. Yeah, personally, but um, I could have done without uh, a lot of that uh, CGI. Well, let's talk the... about that. That's one of the things I wrote down in my notes that I wanted to discuss as a talking point. So this sure. is early-ish CGI. I mean, mm-hmm. we've had stuff like the T one thousand and the uh, the water tentacle from the abyss, or even. Some minor successes in things like Alien 3 and Species before this. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, minor. Yeah. There's not a lot of CG in the movie, like, pound for pound. No. Um, there's Okay, so let's forget the ending. Let's just talk about the stuff before the ending. You pretty much get, like, some quick uh, morphs from, like, human faces to weird demon faces. Mm-hmm. And uh, a couple of people disappearing in in the jogging scene, <laughs> which yeah, was kind of weird. The faces, I thought, were fine. Mm-hmm. A couple of them were pretty creepy, like, design-wise. I kind of liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, the jogging stuff was bad. That was just weird. I like. Yeah. I read that they were supposed to represent three of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Oh. But I don't really understand the whole, like, them yeah. disappearing and reappearing and, like, yeah. looking like you know, hot wavy air or whatever. Yeah, that's just unnecessary. Um 
I thought that the most effective scene with the faces and everything is the first time it happens in the changing room with Charlize Theron and yes. the other two wives. Yes. That, because I didn't remember that that was going to happen. No. <laughs> Whew, that was pretty yeah. fucking creepy. And that then, was... like, the, the it looked like there were hands underneath her skin. Her skin. Yeah. That looked good. Yeah, it didn't look so, bad. No, yeah, and the, the, the face, like, what they did with the faces, I thought was... Uh... Some good choices were made there. And I think it's aided by the fact that they're only on the screen briefly. Yeah. Like average, I would say one and a half to two seconds you see each yeah. of those faces if, maybe. Yeah, max. Um, But then you get to the end. Oof. It's painful to watch, Mills. Yeah, it's just them like throwing all of their special effects budget at the wall. Um, mm-hmm. Like literally, so I was reading about at, this. Yeah, at a wall. Yeah, the um the giant sculpture that like morphs and changes. Uh whoever was in charge of doing that effect, he like filmed people naked swimming in a tank of water in front of a blue screen. And allegedly it took him two months to put all those sequences together with like the mm. footage and the CG. And that like morphing sculpture on the wall alone, which is in the movie for like six to eight minutes maybe was two million dollars which was 10 per which was uh 40 percent of their special effects budget for the movie i mean you was it just worth lit, it <laughs> no they could have just lit more stuff on fire and it would have just been better than that yeah murky, foggy horseshit it's a neat idea that like the sculpture comes alive sure but i think it would have been enough to paint some people white and then have them like yeah. sticking out of the wall and like doing things. Like and... that as a practical effect could have been way cool. Yeah. But man, Even maybe just... some like stop motion transitions or sure. whatever transformations. It was, just, it was just a muddy, murky, foggy mess. Yeah. Which took away from the scene, I think. Like it was just so distracting. Mm-hmm. It just bummed me out, really. <laughs> yeah. Scene in general probably would have been better if it was just like the straight conversation between mm-hmm. Keanu Reeves and uh, Al Pacino until the end of the conversation when some crazier shit needs to happen. Like even him, even Al Pacino briefly turning into like a demon for a moment, like yep. that blue animal face thing uh-huh. just feels like an afterthought that didn't need to be there. Yeah, I agree. But what did you think of that final scene just in general? Was it ruined for you by all the CG stuff? Or I mean, to be honest, yeah, I've, I don't know if, I feel like I'm harping on it more, but yeah, it was. I, I mean, I thought Pacino's great. Like, on the one hand, where I'm like, oh, I could have used more of that. It is nice. It for what is I was actually given. I did enjoy that he just has that one big final freakout scene. You mm-hmm. know, because the guy can act. That's for damn sure. Yeah. You know, so it seems like he like enjoyed himself. He's having fun <laughs> with it. You know, yeah, I liked the sequence just from like that guttural sense of like the final debate argument climax thing, whatever the actual I tried to actually pay attention to what they were saying and follow the context of it. And it all felt like very surface level. Anybody who was tasked with writing a speech by the devil in 30 Mm -hmm. minutes would come up with the same shit, like the whole line about it's better to. It's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven or whatever. Like (laughs) we've all heard that before. Yeah. Um, And then something else that's added for the movie was the whole concept of 
not only Keanu Reeves's character being the son of the devil, but having a sister who the devil wants to procreate with him and create the Antichrist. Like, right. Just out of nowhere, all of a sudden at the end of the movie felt like too much. Um, and I would have almost preferred if it was just a movie about the devil trying to corrupt a good man. Yeah, you know, maybe it, it kind of goes with like the courtroom procedural part of it where I thought there was just a little bit too much of that is when you find out like his final plan. I think, yeah, I would have I would have enjoyed much more him just trying to, like you said, corrupt a good man rather than going to the trouble of making this big and powerful law firm like. You know, I get the idea of, you know, them, you know, getting bad people off on things or whatever. It yeah, was, it's like but... his way to influence society from like a right. from like Wall Street or something almost. Right. I mean, it, it felt like something that's probably more successful as a book than a movie because you could probably flesh things out more, mm-hmm. I guess. I don't know, but. You know, by the time you get to that, I think it was kind of the same thing when I, I'm sure I saw this when I was young and it didn't have nearly the same experience or meaning this time around. But, you know, by the time you get to the end where that's when they ramp the entire thing, you know, crank that up to 11 and then it's still like that kind of whole the Antichrist. It's like very extreme. Mm-hmm. I like I like how Keanu Reeves handles it in the end. Yeah. That works for me. It's just it's just too much too late. Like it doesn't feel like that's what the movie was supposed to be about. It feels mm-hmm. like they didn't have an ending and then they were just like, "Oh, well, he's the devil. He wants to make the antichrist." Right. Um and then I'll tell you also what I wasn't a huge fan of was like Keanu Reeves kills himself to stop himself from being used. And then mm-hmm. He wakes up and it's back at the beginning of the movie when he was like in the bathroom splashing water on his face before he made like a really bad decision in court. I don't know if I love that kind of like, oh, it was almost like a dream of things to come. And then like the Twilight Zone twist of uh, one last final bad piece of CG when the reporter morphs into Al Pacino and Mm -hmm. laughs. And (laughs) like I I could have done without that at the end. It's very much like it, it's a sign of the times for the late 90s, but you know, just because you can do something in CG doesn't mean you should because mm-hmm. it just doesn't age well, especially that. Like it, it could have been, you know, even just I, I agree that I don't like them kind of scrubbing the whole movie, going back to the beginning and then still having another final like gotcha from Al Pacino. But even if they just went from like the you know, him talking to the reporter, to the reporter, like, turning around to walk away, and then you see that it's Al Pacino or something. It's just so, exactly. be so much better. They than... could have done an in-camera trick or something. Oh, God, yeah. So much easier. Do that, like, you know, pan around him, and when you come around the front, it's a different actor, or, mm-hmm. like, he walks out the door, and then when the camera follows him out, they've replaced him or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's I mean, just, I'll... it ends kind of goofy like that, but... Uh, oddly enough, which I don't know if this is everything I've ever even said before, period, but I'd almost like to see an, a remake of this movie. Yeah. Maybe even with Al Pacino still as the devil, but <laughs> just kind of you know, changing up a few things. It feels like you and I had a little bit of a different experience with it where, like, I 
like really enjoyed the movie the whole time and I was like into it and like I said I I wasn't like bothered by the length or anything um and it's like I like the idea of the final confrontation and finally getting the reveal and having Al Pacino go nutso it's just like the the point of that scene I don't like with the antichrist and then I mean it would have been rough to end the movie with just uh Keanu Reeves shooting himself in the head so I mm-hmm. get why they put in the ending where it's like a happy ending yeah. and it goes back in time. But like th- all the things that I don't like are right at the very end. But conceptually, I love the concept of the movie. I really like Keanu Reeves in it. I like Al Pacino in it. And as much as he's like a draw, I do think that he was in the movie the right amount of time. Like he's mm-hmm. not all over the film. It's much more Keanu centric. I thought Charlize was great. Um, it's really just anything that drags the movie down for me at all is that like very end, like 15 minutes, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I liked Charlie's. I thought she was good too, but see like Keanu, I thought his Southern accent is very distracting. Oh, really? Wasn't a fan. Wasn't a fan. I mean, yeah, I think we just had very vastly different experiences with this one. Yeah, maybe. But. Um, well, Not another... complete trash. I'm, you know, I I spent most of my time tra- trashing it, but <laughs> sure. I don't think it's like a complete junk movie. It's it's worth watching for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, going along with the special effects, what did you think of the the weirdly unnecessary wipes in this movie? Oh, that's always like so noticeable and weird. <laughs> like, just... why go to the trouble <laughs> of like when she's painting the wall, have her like paint strokes with the paint roller like wipe to a new scene multiple times yeah just it's like is it one of those things like we can do it so yeah, yeah. the I other mean, one got, we still got two million to use on the uh final <laughs> scene special so. effects budget. um the other one is there's a scene where um an elevator door closing wipes to the next scene which is it just wipes in any movies other than star wars feel weird i feel yeah, I'm, I have to agree. I really do. <laughs> um, A little bit of behind the scenes about this one. So like I said, the writer took the book to Warner Brothers and was basically like, hey, here's a book I wrote. You want to make a movie? And they were immediately interested. Um, After a couple of years, Joel Schumacher was planning to make the film with Brad Pitt Um, hmm. around like 1994, I think. Um, I didn't really get a clear understanding of why it didn't happen, but then apparently they like shelved the movie for a couple of years and then, uh, the OJ trial sparked new interest in the movie in the studio and they bumped up the budget to $60 million and like fast tracked it, I guess, because they wanted to put out a movie about like the court about getting, you know, guilty people off or something. Uh, Maybe. (laughs) Um, and other actors considered for the uh, the lead role were Christian Slater, John Cusack, and Edward Norton. Oh, okay. Um, Al Pacino originally passed on the script three different times because of the cliched writing for his character as Satan, mm-hmm. which is kind of funny since that's one thing we did critique a second ago was like the typical yeah. like diatribe he goes on at the end. <clears throat> but then... Um, He finally signed on after, so Keanu Reeves turned down Speed 2 to do this movie, 
because oh, wow. he didn't want to do just like another action film. He wanted to do something with more substance. Mm-hmm. Um, they were going to pay him $11 million to do Speed 2, and he turned that down. And then on top of that, he took a pay cut to the tune of a couple million dollars for this movie so that the producers could afford Al Pacino's salary and get him in the movie with him. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, good on you, Keanu, for having faith yeah. in the project and wanting to he, pursue it. He's a good dude, that Keanu. Yeah. I mean, this movie doesn't get made without Al Pacino, right? Uh, I don't know. I, mean, I think why they. I think I this mean, is he, another he, one kind of like The Devil's Own, what we were talking about there, where I feel like one passionate actor behind it is what what seals the deal and especially if the studio was fast tracking it because of the oj trial or whatever reason at the time i imagine that they could have and would have ended up with somebody else if al pacino just wouldn't play ball i don't think so honestly really well yeah i mean like i said they would they on their fourth try is when he finally went for it with the the money it just but who else would you see playing the devil well, I don't know about me personally, but Al Pacino, when he turned down the role originally, said that he thought it would be better suited for, oh, it was somebody else and Robert Redford were the two people he suggested instead. Hmm. I mean, again, it's one of those things, of course, I see Pacino doing it because he's the one that did it, but yeah, I just, I don't, I don't think this movie gets made without him. I don't know. I disagree. I think that they could have gone with a different actor. Like, let's just say they went with someone like Robert Redford, who's not as, like, over the top as Al Pacino is. I think it would have been just as easy for him to play more of, like, a quiet, scheming devil than, like, a, you know, hey, you want to come upstairs and do some coke with these hookers with me (laughs) kind of devil, you know? Um, maybe it wouldn't have worked as well, but I can I can totally see them going a different direction with a different actor. Now that now they're rewriting the script for Redford Milsey, I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, just saying, I I could see it happening. Um, oh. you know, with Keanu, who I feel like was you know pretty big at the time, um, with him behind it, I'm sure they would have found somebody and gone ahead. But you know, uh, mm-hmm. you know, props to Keanu for doing what he did to True. get Pacino in there if that's yeah, who they really wanted. I mean, that's a stand-up guy when he wants, you know, something to get made and he'll make the sacrifice. It is so funny that the appreciate. studio just wouldn't leave Pacino alone and was like, look, the devil, you have to play him. Mm-hmm. Nobody else yeah. can play the devil. Right. That's the way I see it, Mills. <laughs> uh, one more bit of trivia about this movie that I found interesting. Um, did you read about the lawsuit? Uh, yeah, it's uh, some particular some piece of art, right? Yeah, so... Hart v. Warner Brothers Incorporated, um, that big fucking crazy sculpted mural thing we were talking about at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an artist named Frederick Hart who sculpted a a big sculpture that looks very much like the one in the movie. It's called Ex Nihilo, and it is at the Episcopal National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., um, now Warner Brothers claims that they weren't even aware of this thing, but looking at it, there's no way that whoever designed that thing for the movie didn't base it on this guy's sculpture. And oh, basically, yeah. um, it was so close that he and the church sued Warner Brothers, um, 
and the uh, the proceedings were taking so long to be ironed out that a federal judge actually delayed the home video release of the movie. Oh wow! Uh, for I, like a couple of months, I think. <clears throat> and uh, Warner Brothers, uh, you know, they wanted the money from the home video release. They were banking on it, so uh, they finally came to a settlement, and an agreement was made whereby Warner Brothers would put stickers on every single copy of the VHS and DVD, like first printings that like claimed that there was no connection between the original piece of art and the, the one in the movie. Mm -hmm. And then they also had to promise that any future releases of the movie, they would edit the film. So They didn't reproduce the film until 2012 when they released an unrated director's cut. And I would love to see this now because the unrated director's cut Blu-ray, they have somehow edited the appearance of the uh, the sculpture at the end of the movie. Oof. And I would be very curious to see, A, what it looks like now, and B, if they used this opportunity to like clean up that CG at all. I mean... I would it'd be worth watching. Yeah, for sure. I'm I'm definitely curious. There's gotta be like a YouTube video that shows side by side or something. I just haven't looked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good call. But yeah, on the whole, uh pleasant experience for me. All right, all right. Uh didn't mention directed by a guy named Taylor Hackford, who also made uh an officer and a gentleman, uh proof of life with Russell Crowe. Uh, he directed Ray, mm. and uh, one of his more recent films was Parker, starring Jason Statham, which I saw and was not great. Oh, I don't know that one. And, um, yeah, written by, oh, uh, co-written by Tony Gilroy, who is the brother of Dan Gilroy, who made Nightcrawler. Oh. And has a connection oh. to the show because Dan Gilroy wrote... Uh, Real Steel. (laughs) Right. But his brother Tony, very prolific, also wrote The Cutting Edge, uh, had a hand in writing Armageddon, Proof of Life, the first four Born Identity movies. Oh, Uh, Michael Clayton, uh, he wrote Rogue One. Mm -hmm. And he also wrote the Matt Damon vehicle, The Great Wall. (laughs) Oh, wow. Fascinating lineup. Covering a lot of ground there. Yeah. Oh, and how did we not mention that Craig T. Nelson is in this movie? Oh, yes. He, Coach. He, like, plays against type because he was typically, like, a, you know, nice guy, family guy, or family man actor mm-hmm. um, on, like, TV and everything. And then in this, he plays, like, uh, what was his what was his job? Was he a developer? No. I don't remember, but he's some, like, you know, rich, powerful guy in New York City no. who... It's alluded that he murders his family. <laughs> right. And they're trying to get him off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also starring so, Jeffrey Jones. Yeah. So it de- definitely covers your, uh, if you're looking for some courtroom drama mixed with the devil, mm-hmm. this is your movie. This is your movie. All right. Uh, shall we move on to our final film, which doesn't involve yes. courtrooms in the least? Shall we? All right, so from the year 2001, we have The Devil's Backbone. ¿Qué es un fantasma? Un evento terrible condenado a repetirse una y otra vez. 
下。Algo muerto que parece por momentos vivo aún. Un sentimiento suspendido en el tiempo. Como una fotografía borrosa. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is Guillermo del Toro's second film after Cronos. That is incorrect. Oh, what else did he make in between? Mimic. Mimic was before this. Yep. Oh yeah, I guess it would have been late nineties. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I read that uh, after Chronos came out, Pedro Almodovar like searched out Guillermo del Toro and was like, "Hey, I liked that movie. I want to produce your next film." Which is why I guess I thought that this was his next movie. Yes, that I have heard that as well. But I don't know if that just means like you know, independently or whatever, or, you know, he, then he went to try the Hollywood route and I think, I believe he struggled with mimic. Yes. So, but yeah. So the devil's backbone, this is, I'll give the synopsis cause I have it right in front of me. Okay. After Carlos, a 12 year old whose father has died in the Spanish civil war, arrives at an ominous boy's orphanage, he discovers the school is haunted and has many dark secrets that he must uncover. Very professional. That's good, huh? (laughs) This is a movie I own. I have the Blu-ray Criterion edition. As I mentioned earlier, so do I. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is the third time I've watched it. Second time for me. So I know I watch it. I believe a friend of the show, Tony Sedani, turned me on to this movie. And then I ended up with a copy, watched it then, and then watched it again for this. And I'd actually like to watch it with the uh, commentary, the Guillermo del Toro commentary. I'm interested in that as well. Yeah. I don't know if it's come up on come up on the show before. I'd, Guillermo del Toro is probably my favorite filmmaker um, in general. So, you know, I'm a big fan of his work. And I enjoy this movie. Um, Do you agree with Guillermo del Toro that this is his best film? I guess he says that this is his favorite of his films. It's not my favorite of his films. I'm not ready to exactly answer what is my favorite. We all know it's Mimic. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I like six foot tall, you know. Cockroach people. Cockroach people. Um, But. So, uh, yeah, I have a little bit of history with this movie. Um, It it feels very independent. It's like high and tight. It's small. You know, um, it's really just the one. The one location besides. Maybe there's two scenes outside of the orphanage. Yeah, but. I mean, the way they look, they could have been filmed like around. They could have set up a set yeah. around the backside of the sure. orphanage. Oh. oh, for sure. And filmed like, oh, here's the street where some people get lined up and shot. <laughs> so it's that it's that kind of thing that I like, where you know maybe he's only given so like he has a script, but he's only given so much money. So is it scaled back or not? To, or does is the whole vision just in the one locale? I'm guessing based on the 
content, the subject matter and the story. It was it, it was just like the original script was that it was supposed to be the one location. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I did watch a little bit of the interviews and special features on the Blu-ray the other night when I watched this. Mm-hmm. And he did mention several times wanting to do things like with the ghost that he couldn't because of time and money. Yeah. Uh, one of them was uh, the ghost, Santi. He wanted him to do all of his performance backwards so that he could then reverse the footage and make it look even more unnatural and oh, weird. But yeah. apparently that would have taken too long and cost too much to like spend all that on the film, I guess. Uh, yeah, yeah. And the other thing is uh, he really, really wanted the ghost to float because I guess in a lot of classic literature and folklore, according to him, like ghosts typically don't have feet or are talked about as like not having feet because they float. And he oh. really wanted the ghost to float, but they just couldn't afford the like the wire work and the digital mm-hmm. effects to do it. Interesting. Yeah, apparently it was already pushing their limits, having his head like bleeding, like floating blood the whole time whenever he was mm. on the screen. So, like technical stuff like that, it sounds like was affected by the budget. But I'm also wondering if you know. So he originally wrote. Uh, a version of this movie when he was in like film school. Yep. And uh, from what I understand, it greatly changed um, between then and the film that they ended up making. But I would almost bet as like a, a young budding filmmaker, he might have like written it to be a single location specifically because he knew he likely wouldn't get a lot of money to make it would mm-hmm. be my guess. Yeah. Kind of like sense. how, you know, when, when Kevin Smith writes his first movie and he knows it's going to, you know, he's not going to have a lot of money. He's like, oh, well, I'll just set the entire thing in a convenience store that I have access to already. Right, right. Yep. <laughs> or Quentin Tarantino with Reservoir Dogs being pretty much one location. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I kind of like that, uh, you know, pull up your bootstraps and get to work, like use whatever you can and, you know. Mm-hmm. make it work with what you have. I like that. But I got to be honest, um, the look and the feel of the movie, it just naturally feels like it belongs in the one location. I never feel like I'm tired of the same place or anything. No, yeah. Uh, it never feels lacking in any regard. Like the mm-hmm. only, only thing that I could say doesn't look the best is when you really get a look at that bleeding forehead on the kid it's just you know the special effects were almost 20 years ago now but outside of that i think the movie looks beautiful um i love the sepia tone color palettes and something that guillermo pointed out in one of the special features i was watching that i didn't even i wasn't cognizant of is how important uh oxidized metal was in the film Mm. Um, like right down to like the, the bomb in the center of the courtyard is just like from the rain. It's just like bleeding oxidation and, uh, the building just has all these beams out in the courtyard and there's tons of oxidized rust running down the walls. And then something in the design that I didn't even think of, of the ghost to kind of tie into all of that. And like the rusty water, the like red water that he's thrown in when he dies, Mm -hmm. um, the tear streaks running down his face are orange, like oxidized oh, tears. No yeah. Something oh. I didn't pick up on myself, but when he was explaining it in the, the special features, I was like, oh, that's so cool. That is cool. Yeah. He, he's big on, you know, uh, color and color matching. and Yeah. Movie's beautiful. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, 
I don't I don't know if I have the most well-trained eye for this kind of thing, but man, this like Blu-ray Criterion edition like is is really like breathtaking looking. Mm-hmm. Like the colors are so crisp. It's been a long time since I'd watched it. But man, I was like pretty blown away with the whole look of it. I'm going to assume since they do this with a lot of directors and he has a couple films released by them that he oversaw the uh Yes. The uh, upgrade and the color timing and he, everything he, for this he version. Did. Yeah, I read that on the box. Yeah. Um, I really liked the location, you know, the orphanage itself. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's awesome, and especially like the basement where the Santee's pool is or whatever. Yeah. It's awesome. Like, I just love that location so much. Yeah, I love the look of the whole place. Like, he gets a lot of use out of this one location. Mm-hmm. Um, even though most of the scenes are in the same couple places, like the, the room that all the beds are in for the boys, a couple of hallways, the kitchen, the, um, the courtyard, the basement. Um, like I say that I'm, I never feel like, you know, constrained or sick of any of the visuals. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not yeah, the longest movie in the world, but it like moves along pretty well. I think so. Yeah. It's, you know, for, I think it's an hour 48 minutes i think mm-hmm. um it doesn't doesn't drag on for me at all even though it's just in like the one area i mean the cast is good the you know cast of characters is small but i think everyone does uh pretty good i would say i mean in an episode of triple threat theater where we literally have a movie we watched that the devil is actually in <laughs> yeah i think that Jacinto is the most evil character from all three movies. Oh, 100%. He's just a fucking he's a monster. Asshole. Yeah. And it's crazy to think that he grew up in the same orphanage and was just like had the same limitations as all those other mm-hmm. kids and then he's going to treat these young boys like shit. Oh. It, like after he went through all the same stuff like Yeah. Man, that it, just makes him the worst. Like it, you know, he mistreats people and he hurts people, but that was the thing that really, I think, made me dislike him the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the script is so good in that regard that it just like keeps ramping up how horrible of a person he is. Yeah. That it's it's not like immediately prevalent in the beginning that like, oh. No. You know, there's your villain right there. Yeah. Even as he's like kind of an unlikable character throughout, it's not, it doesn't really hit you until deep into the second half that oh this is our villain like this is right. the yeah. this is the force to be reckoned with mm-hmm. um and i guess now's as good a time as any to talk about this yes please this movie is called the devil's backbone it's got devil in the title uh there are ghosts in the film a horror movie does this movie deserve that distinction I don't think so. I mean, is it just more of a thriller? I don't know exactly what you want to call it, but like many times on the Sidetrack podcast over the years, I've had this conversation with Jesse um, where he's asked me, like, what is a horror movie and why do I like horror movies and all this stuff? And the thing that I always fall back on is uh, like, you know, I like to find my little metaphorical ways of quickly discerning something like... uh, you and I talked on an early episode of Triple Threat about like when it comes to defining simple genre, like I like to go to where would they have filed this on the shelves at Blockbuster Video? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, because of the title and like the look of the uh, advertising and the fact that there is a ghost in it, I bet you that that's where they would have filed it. Yeah. But looking at it more closely, um, like to me, when it comes to horror, it's like, what was the intention of the filmmaker? Was the intention of the filmmaker to scare or unsettle the audience? And honestly, the ghost in the movie, I don't really think, aside from just immediately like seeing him early on in like little glimpses and stuff, I don't think the intention of this movie is ever to be scary, unless you're talking about like Jacinto, you know, slowly stabbing his fiance on the road because she won't do what he says, or, you know, um, like hurting people and like taking kids hostage and insinuations. Blowing up an orphanage. Yeah. Like this movie, I'm more inclined to just call it like a period drama with like a fantasy element to it. Because even within the movie, like, you know, there's this rumor with the kids of like, oh, there's a ghost. This place is haunted. But like the main character who you follow, Carlos, um, he's not afraid of Santi. Like the first time he sees him again, yes, it's like a startling thing. But he, I think, immediately realizes that there's no threat from Santi. And then, like, all of his subsequent meetings with him, he's, like, he wants to talk to him, and he's not running away from him. And Sure. Um, I honestly think it's it does this movie a little bit of a disservice to just relegate it to horror. Not to say that horror is a bad thing, because you know I fucking love horror movies. Of course. But in as much as I think that there are a lot of people who, A, unfortunately wouldn't touch this movie because it's a foreign language film, and B, wouldn't touch it because it's a horror film. And I think that this is deserving of a bigger audience than it potentially gets because it is quote-unquote horror, or that's what people call it. I mean, I would agree, Milsey. I mean, based on the poster, the synopsis I read, I mean, 99% of the people, like especially anyone who never actually saw the movie, they're slapping the horror sticker on it every time. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like you said, it's not... Well, it's not really fitting of that designation. What made me want to talk about this was uh, when I was reading through the Wikipedia, one of the notes on there was that uh, this movie was number 61 on Bravo's 100 Scariest Movie Moments and number 18 on Bloody Disgusting's Top 20 Horror Films of the Decade. And I'm just like, yeah, you have an entire decade of horror films to choose from and you're going to put this right. on there? Like, you know, it's a good movie, 100%. But mm-hmm. if you're the website Bloody Disgusting and you're basing your uh, list on, like, horror films, I don't think this belongs. Yeah, I I don't think so at all. Top 20 I mean, films involving ghosts and monsters, maybe, sure. Sure. But just the simple presence of a monster or a ghost does not make a movie a horror film to me. And it's just... Yeah, I... um. Yeah, that's odd because I don't find any part of this movie like scary in the traditional horror sense at all. Yeah. Like I say, there's there's brief moments like when Carlos first shows up at the school and there's that moment where you see Santi in the background, like in the doorway. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, that's a typical I wouldn't even call it a jump scare, but it's a typical like foreshadowing of things to come horror movie thing. And like, yes, you know. He's not designed like Casper to be cute or something. He is a dead child who's wandering around in the afterlife. Um, But I don't think he's like horribly grotesque. 
Um, I mean, another thing that I saw Guillermo talk on the special features about was like how, like how much they went into designing that character and how, um, Guillermo, instead of being scary, wanted him to look like broken and sad. And that's why they designed him to be so white and have like cracks all over his head to look like, like a broken doll that like a child had discarded somewhere and been forgotten. Mm. Um, I think he looks awesome. Yeah, so do I. And I love the detail of like the the blood like coming out of his head as though he's submerged in water, even though yeah. he's like on dry Walking land. Around. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got like the the hints of like his skeleton that shows through. Yeah, I really like. I mean, yeah, I think it's a real real cool design. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost reminiscent to me in a manner of speaking of like American Werewolf in London is as much a comedy as it is a horror movie, I think, but like the, the friend, the best friend character who's dead and is like appearing and talking to the main character. It's like, he's not meant to be scary. He's like got exposed ribs and like a big, like cut on his head or whatever. And he's like gross looking, but that's just like, you know, I'm dead and this is what I look like now. Right. But that character is not meant to be a source of fear. And Mm -hmm. I would kind of view Santi as the same thing without the comedic element. I would uh, have to agree, Mills. Yeah, but uh, truly, the uh, the evil in the film is. <laughs> yeah, that... I, I mean, he gets his comeuppance, which I enjoy. But man, does he leave uh, some terror in his wake? Yeah, definitely does. Um, I love that scene at the end, though, where the kids they finally get him. Yeah. Oh the... man, they they stabbing him. <sighs> that first stab in the armpit. Oh, it hurts so bad. Yeah, man, it makes your hair stand up on your arm. <laughs> and then that second one when he's reaching for the gun and the kid stabs him in the forearm. Yeah. I was like, damn, Gil- Guillermo really stabbed that guy in the arm. That looks real. <laughs> yeah, that stuff is good. It's like, you know, all the fucking horrible things he's done through the movie, you want to see him get it. And so uh-huh. this is a case where I think just about anybody who watches it wouldn't necessarily be turned off by that bit of violence because they don't shy away. And it's pretty right. pretty gross, but right. I think it's, you know, worthwhile. I concur, friend. Um just from like a design element of the movie, um, I had forgotten that it really doesn't have anything to do with anything, but I love the bomb in the courtyard. Oh. Yeah. It's like a it's just I'm not sure where the idea came in or anything. Yeah. But well even I don't know if it's if this is what's meant to be, but when there's a couple of times where Santa keeps talking about everyone dying or like a I can't remember his exact line, but he mentions like people will die or something. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I can I, when I first saw it, I always felt like it was going to involve the bomb some way. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is like I'd seen the movie before. It had been a little while, but like rewatching it this time, I kept thinking like, man, I don't remember what happens with the bomb. And then nothing happens with the bomb. It's just like right. a cool visual yeah. element. It's like, I don't know. It's, I guess it's there just to give you that feeling of impending doom. <laughs> yeah. But it's nice that it just, it does, it's not, it's a non-factor. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's on the cover of the movie and like. Uh, I think Necker or somebody just not too long ago put out an action figure based on Santi from this movie and included with it is a base that has the bomb on oh, it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Nice. But uh, 
I can dig it. Mm-hmm. A little surprising that uh, Mignola did not do the uh, the artwork for the Criterion yeah. release. Although the style of the artwork isn't too far off from him, which makes it feel like they were right. just like, hey, get someone like Mignola. Well, is it is it Guy Davis? Uh, it I didn't look like Guy Davis to me, but I'm not sure. I could be wrong. I th- I think it's like a name we know. Really? It's not It's not just a ripoff from Mignola, I think. I can't tell you for sure. I don't know. Okay. Well, I'll have to look into that. Uh, the one other kind of behind-the-scenes thing that I read about this movie is I mentioned earlier that, like, the title, Devil's mm-hmm. Backbone, it originally had a different meaning. So, like, oh, yes. <laughs> originally... Uh, the film was going to take place in front of like a mountain range, uh, and wherever this mountain range is, I guess the actual like nickname for it is the Devil's Backbone. Oh, that's cool. And Guillermo del Toro on the the documentary features talks about how, um, you know, it comes from folklore of like God fought the devil, and then that's where the devil fell, and that's just like his the Devil's Backbone is sticking up out mm. of the ground. That's cool. Um, And so that was part of his original story that he wrote when he was in film school. And then when he revisited the concept later, he liked the title so much that even though the story changed, he he literally just tried to find a way to have the title make sense. Mm. And that's when he brought in the thing about the uh, the <laughs> spina bifida. Yeah. Well, well played on this one. <laughs> yeah. So again, the title really doesn't have anything to do with the movie, but um, just like the bomb doesn't really have anything to do with the yeah. plot, but you know. It's all just flavor. Yeah, to the it's film. a great name. Yeah, no, that's a good. That's the best way of putting it. It's flavored, like that flavored water they sell in the, <laughs> the town. Yeah, but, but uh, yeah, yeah, man, good stuff. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about these posters? Let's talk about the posters. Although some right. of them, I don't feel like there's a whole lot to talk about. But uh, well, there's not. This could be a quick one, but that's okay. Uh, Devil's Own. Let's just <laughs> get this one out of the way. <laughs> This this is everything wrong with movie posters. Yeah, like this one is literally just the two faces of the char- the main characters, the two main characters, yes. and like a tiny little piece of a background, but you can't even tell what it is in silhouette. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know if that's supposed to be the Empire State Building or not. You you can't tell. That could be like uh, Big Ben in the background for all exactly. I know. Yeah. Um, this is totally, see this movie because these two guys are in it. That's it. That's all you need. Which, yeah, I mean, I don't know conceptually if I just wanted to illustrate this film, what I would do. Like, I'm sure you mm-hmm. could come up with a montage or something. But, um, yeah, this 100% is them just throwing their hands in the air and saying, like, look, we got two big names, man. Just put them on the yeah. fucking poster. I mean, yeah, this... This was the easy. This was totally like a just give us something easy. Give the have the intern come up with a poster for us real quick. Yeah. So uh, on the devil's backbone scale, this gets uh, this gets one vertebrae from me. <laughs> Same. Same here. Uh, All right, devil's advocate. Uh, back to what I said. Unfortunately, this uh. Artwork is too devilish, <laughs> yeah. Because it 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 sells it, it just it, down to the font and everything. Like, there's no denying that, you know, the devil is in this movie. You can, I mean, it's fine. I mean, it's not like horrible by any means, but 
it does exactly what you said, which is what they shouldn't have done. Yeah, it's honestly just a play on the same thing as the Devil's Advocate or the Devil's Own poster, where it's just the two leads, um, mm-hmm. front and center. It's not as egregious as the Devil's Own, where that's literally just cropping their faces with just right. surrounded by black. Like, hey, there's nothing else about this movie aside from these two right. fucking mugs. Yeah, and maybe some water. Yeah. Um, so this one I like better than the devil zone, but, uh, not to the extreme. Um, this one would get two vertebra for me. Yeah. I concur. And then, you know, part of me would like to say like, obviously Guillermo del Toro's poster is the best. Uh, I'm not thrilled by this poster for the devil's backbone though. (laughs) I, I am not as well. I think this one's kind of rough yeah i mean it's like a low budget uh it was a spanish mexican co-production i think but you know spanish language film um i don't really know what the film industry in uh in spain is Mm -hmm. but uh this looks to me like uh just like a cheap slap something together for a dv a cheapo dvd box cover like something you'd find in the five dollar bin at walmart kind of look is this is that Jacinto in the middle? Uh, it's got to be right. He's the only guy of like that age. Uh, yeah, on this double lost. Yeah, I had to zoom in, but yeah, this is just you know, there's elements. It's got a ghost, Jacinto, the the orphanage, and the basement. But yeah, you know, you could have done. It could have been this same font, everything here, but just you could have put the the bomb sticking up straight in the middle. You know. Uh, yeah. Just anything's more striking than this. This is just another bad. It just looks so generic. Like you could take away the title, and it'd be tough to even tell what this movie's from if you didn't just watch the film. Mm -hmm. Like it's so generic. Like even the colors do not speak of the film at all because this is like deep reds and like blown out blues. But the Mm -hmm. movie, like we talked about, is so sepia tone. Yeah. No. 100% 100% accurate. That's um, why I've never even seen this before today. Yeah, me neither. So, just um, goes to show. It is what they show on IMDb, though. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not, which generally I've always just known the criterion packaging. But yeah. Good. Uh, you know, I, it's probably going to be two vertebrae for me on this one as well. Yeah, it's not. I mean, the Devil Zone is just. A, the worst of the worst. Yeah. So I would give, I would say this is a two and I'd probably say devil's advocate is the best one. Yeah. Yeah. Devil's advocate's probably the best, but it's not like significantly better than the other two. No, so certainly not. But so hope, hopefully in the future we'll have more compelling <laughs> poster reviews. Yeah. Well, this is what you get when you have late nineties movies. <laughs> yeah. That you're yeah. talking about for yep. the show. Poor Photoshop. So. Yeah. Very good. All right, um, time to buy and borrow and burn. Oh, uh, did it you is did, indeed? Did you come into this one knowing what your order was going to be? I feel like you usually do, and I usually don't. I I was a good like ninety seven percent sure, <laughs> and and it held up. All right. Uh, well, do you want to go first or shall I? I'll go first. All right. It should be no surprise. I'm going to buy. Devil's Backbone. Mm-hmm. I'm going to borrow 
Devil's Own. Mm. Burn Devil's Advocate. Well, uh, that's not too surprising based on the conversations we just had. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know, honestly, going into this <laughs> exactly what I was going to do because, mm-hmm. like, I, I, I'll say that The Devil's Backbone is my buy. Um, I own that one. I've seen it before. I like it. Um, And, you know, it's not necessarily the most memorable movie of all time. It's not like my favorite Guillermo del Toro movie. It's not like an all-time favorite of mine. Right. I like it quite a bit, though. And admittedly, after watching all three of these movies, I feel like to a degree I liked them kind of on the same level. Mm -hmm. Like, enjoyed them all. Some I was surprised by. Some I knew that I liked. Um, but none of them I absolutely 100% love, and none of them I, like, hated. So going into this episode, I was like, you know, I'm just going to have to figure it out as I go. <laughs> nice. But, yeah, Devil's Backbone, just stylistically as a full package, I think is, like, a really, really good, compelling movie. Um, so for me, it comes down to what I'm going to borrow. And, you know, while I like... Devil's Advocate and Devil's Own both. I think that just the premise mm. uh, is largely going to do it for me, and uh, I'm going to borrow Devil's Advocate and burn mm-hmm. Devil's Own. And not because I like really dislike Devil's Own more than Devil's Advocate or anything, just um, I feel like Devil's Advocate is a little more unique, just like the whole idea of like you know the devil in like the kind of high class New York society and uh, tying in like the lawyer and trying to damage like a good person. You know, I still don't absolutely love the ending, but the devil's own solid movie, good performances, not like the most compelling plot ever. Like Mm -hmm. I don't even really know if we talked about the plot or praised it at all. The plot is really just there to give a reason for Brad Pitt and, uh, Harrison Ford to be at odds, which is, you know, they're both great in it. True. But, um, yeah, just high concept wise, I think I prefer devil's advocate and I think it will remain more memorable to me than the devil's own. So pretty, pretty close between the two of those. Yeah. I I don't hate that. I mean, I, I don't know if I maybe came off particularly harsh about devil's advocate. I would still think it's worth people watching, mm-hmm. um, for the, you know, for the sake of the show, I feel like my stuff is more like nitpicky about it. Yep. But, um, with me, it kind of just boils down to like now I've seen Devil's Advocate twice. I don't see to need to see it again. Where you know, <laughs> you just wait for the fifteenth anniversary of this episode when we have to revisit. Right. right. Well, then that that'll be the time. But um, there was just enough that irked me during that one where the Devil's Own I. That was new to me. I enjoyed it more while I was watching it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, reading all the stuff after the fact even kind of added to my enjoyment, I guess, <laughs> just because it was like such a crazy kind it's of like story. It's like an injured puppy you feel the need to defend it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just like, you know, again, why I always come back to, you know, uh, being a fly on the wall, but kind of one of those crazy kind of Hollywood stories, I guess. Yeah. But I would, uh, these are three movies I would say are all worth watching. Yeah, for sure. Even if I don't, you know, particularly love everything to the, it's kind of like the same, like you said. Like, I really enjoy Devil's Backbone. 
and I love Guillermo del Toro, but certainly not my favorite. Mm-hmm. It's it's the easy win for me, but yeah, that doesn't. It's not like other ones where I'm not. You know, I'm not chucking Devil's Advocate into the sun like I have with <laughs> previous movies. Yeah, I would agree with you that Devil's Backbone was the easy win for me. Like, despite, like I said, they're all relatively close in enjoyment. Um, mm-hmm. Devil's Backbone is the one that rises above. Yeah. For me. I think it's like the mm-hmm. most complete vision of a film mm-hmm. of the three yes, of us. for sure. Um, do you mind divulging? Right here and now, uh, what is your favorite uh, Guillermo del Toro movie? Or do you not have like an immediate, I know this is my go-to I answer. I don't have, no, I don't. It, it was something I would sit down and have to think about. Mine, without hesitation, is Pan's Labyrinth. I mm. love that movie. Um, I mean, that's certainly up there. Um, I mean, I enjoy the shit out of Pacific Rim. And I can't believe yeah. how often I find myself defending that movie. Like the the common consensus seems to be about Pacific Rim that the acting is terrible and the story sucks and yeah. the action isn't good enough to make it worthwhile, which I think is fucking insane. Right, which is all 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 three of those points I disagree with. Yeah, I I love that movie. Like the gothic horror fantasy is a thing that Guillermo del Toro obviously loves and likes to play in because you've got like Devil's Backbone, you've got Pan's mm-hmm. Labyrinth, you've got Crimson Peak. But um, I just think Pan's Labyrinth, it combines like the kind of real world, like wartime struggle kind of feel of something like Devil's Backbone but with just more of the fantasy supernatural stuff that whether or not he intended to do more in Devil's Backbone, uh, he could afford to do by the time of Pan's Labyrinth. I, yeah. It's another movie that I think looks beautiful, and I just like conceptually love that movie as well. I mean, I, I think, like, Pan's Labyrinth is such a home run overall. I, I only, you know, I only hold back because I'm not, because I really, really love The Shape of Water. Yeah. Between that, it's kind of between that and Pan's Labyrinth. I also, not a popular opinion, I love Hellboy 2, but um, it's still... Not a popular opinion in this, in this uh, between the two of us. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I got to get that on the show at some point, I think, because you've only seen it the one time, I believe. That's true. So Do what you got to do, but... Uh, that, that's a discussion for another day. It comes down to Pan's Labyrinth and Shape of Water. Yeah. You know, I... I I'm not sure. So I think that uh I don't have a super clear recollection of Kronos, but uh I think that I would easily say that Hellboy 2 is my least favorite Guillermo del Toro movie, so please <laughs> bring it on. That's that's wild. <laughs> Change my that's mind. That's wild in these streets right now. <laughs> All right, I'll I'll take that challenge. All right. Find us a trio, something to All put right, it right. To put along with it. <clears throat> you got it. All right, you ready to uh, generate our random number and find out what we're watching on episode 15? I'm so ready. Uh, We've added a few things to the list recently, so we have 185 potential Mm. trios to choose from. All right, here we go. 185. Oh, Millsy. Yep. 15 on 15. 15, wow. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, for episode 15, we're going to be watching the theme, Art of the Sword. Oh, now for something different. Yeah, this is cool. I'm looking oh, forward nice, to this. Nice. 
I'm definitely. Oh, I, I'm very excited for this one. Yeah, definitely looking forward to this. Oh. Uh, rare instance of an episode that you and I came up with the tri- the trio together. Mm. Oh yeah, look at that. Yeah, it's a combined effort, not just one of us uh-huh. saying like, "What do you think oh. of this?" Oh, this is a good one. Uh, I'm gonna get these movies for sure very quickly. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Definitely nice. looking forward to this. Nice. <clears throat> no, I'm pumped. All right. Well, cool. Well, Mills, we've done it again. Yes, we have. For the well, 14th time. <laughs> yep. Gracious listeners, we hope you enjoyed it as well. Let us know on the internet machines. <laughs> and uh, with that, until next time, I'm Joe Axberger. And I'm Ryan Miller. Thanks for watching. That was one of the finest movies I've ever seen. They ought to make them all like that. None of this nonsense about social matters. People don't go to the movies to see how miserable the world is. They go there to eat popcorn and be happy. Be happy, happy, happy.